Greetings. This is Brian Chilton of BellatorChristi.com. The apologetics community has been greatly divided over the issue about how we interpret the alleged quote-unquote contradictions of the New Testament gospel narratives as well as the book of Acts. On the one hand, some scholars advocate what is called the literary device theory. The literary device theory holds that ancient biographers used literary devices in their texts to compress, telescope, summarize, or to rearrange material in their communication efforts. On the other hand, some, like our guest today, advocate for an older method which is known as the undesigned coincidence theory. This theory holds that the texts have notable connections that were not planned that actually strengthen the historical reliability of the text at hand, much as eyewitness testimony would. BellatorChristi.com believes in the free expression of Christian apologetic, theological, and scholarly ideas, and we believe that each perspective should be given a fair hearing. Tim Stratton, a good friend of Bellator Christi Ministries, recently interviewed Mike Lacona on his Free Thinking Ministries podcast. We encourage you to listen to his podcasts to hear the perspective on the literary device theory. However, today we ask that you grant a fair hearing to the other perspective. So on this edition of the Bellator Christi podcast, we are honored and pleased to be joined by analytic philosopher, Ph.D. graduate from Vanderbilt University, and author of Hidden in Plain View, Undesigned Coincidences in the Gospels and Acts, Dr. Lydia McGrew. Join us this today as we step into the arena of ideas on this edition of the Bellator Christie Podcast. Listening to the Bellator Christie Podcast, brought to you by BellatorChristie.com. Now join your host, Brian Chilton, as we enter the arena of ideas. Taking up the sword of Christian theology and the shield of classic apologetics while entering the tru- entering the into the arena of ideas, I'll get that right in a minute, uh, this is the Bellator Christie Podcast, and this is your host, Brian Chilton. I want to remind you that the Bellator Christie Podcast is a production of bellatorchristie.com. We do encourage you to go to the website, and while you're there, subscribe. By doing so, you'll receive all of the articles and links to these podcasts uh, in your inbox absolutely free. You can also follow the podcast on several different apps. We're on iTunes, TuneIn, Stitcher, as well as Google Play. Uh, we have a wonderful guest with us today, and I just I have to say I am excited. In fact, uh, some of my friends are excited about this podcast today. We have with us uh, Dr. Lydia McGrew. Uh, Dr. McGrew is a widely published analytic philosopher, uh, homeschooling mother, blogger, and the wife of philosopher and apologist Timothy McGrew. 
She received her Ph.D. in English from Vanderbilt University, uh, which is quite an accomplishment, a really good school there. 1995 is when she graduated. She has published and continues to publish extensively in the theory of knowledge. She specializes in pure formal epistemology and in the application of formal epistemology to the evaluation of testimony and to various topics in the philosophy of religion. Her articles in philosophy have appeared in such journals as uh, Ergo Philosophical Philosophical, I'll get that right in a minute, Philosophical Studies, The Journey of Philosophical Research, Erkintis, I probably massacred that. Uh, She and uh, Timothy McGrew co-wrote the article on the resurrection of Jesus for the Blackwell Companion to Natural Theology, and she wrote the article Historical Inquiry for the Routledge uh, Companion to Theism. In 2017, she published Hidden in Plain View, Undesigned Coincidences in the Gospels Gospels and Acts, which defends the reliability of the New Testament using a long-neglected argument from incidental details. Her book, Hidden in Plain View, has been endorsed by numerous New Testament scholars, apologists, theologians, and philosophers. Uh, Just take a look at some of these endorsements. Uh, She has a uh, preface written by Craig Keener. Uh, She's been endorsed by William Lane Craig, Craig Blomberg, Gary Habermas, uh, again, Craig Keener, Paul Meyer, uh, Stephen Evans, Daryl Bach, Greg Boyd, Sean McDowell, and Craig Evans. Uh, Just a list goes on and on and on. So it is a joy and honor to have with us on the Bellator Christie Podcast, Dr. Lydia McGrew. Dr. McGrew, thank you for being with us today. Thanks for having me, Brian. It's great to be here. As we ask all of our first-time guests, and we hope this will be the first of many times that you're on the podcast and you have an open invitation to come anytime, uh, would you please share about the time when you first accepted Christ as your Savior? Sure. I, I remember it quite clearly. I was just four years old. I was alone in my room at night. My mom and dad had taught me about Jesus all along. They were very devout Christians. I remember really clearly how definite I was that I wanted to commit my life to Jesus Christ. And the next day I ran and told them they were very happy, and I started this big campaign to get my pastor to baptize me, which he was reluctant to do because I was really young. But all of this makes me sound like a very, very cute little girl, very pious and all of that. But I was actually a rather spoiled little girl, and I was a very difficult uh, child. And this process of sanctification had to begin then and has had to continue up until this time and is ongoing today. But Jesus is the same today as he was then, and I'm just immeasurably grateful for the salvation that we have through the Jesus Christ of history, whom I believed in and decided to follow all those years ago. Amen. Amen. Now, I've got to add one additional detail. Uh, Your husband is uh, Tim McGrew, and your daughter, my understanding is your daughter recently uh, won a chess uh, state championship. Am I understanding that correctly? I I do have a daughter who is the uh, women's champion for Michigan. That's correct. That is absolutely amazing. (laughs) Now, are are you a chess master yourself? I do not. I mean, I can play the game, but I am not deeply into the game. Uh, as three out of three out of five of the members of our family are very much into the game, although um, my older daughter is uh, involved in graduate school in mathematics right now, so she hasn't been able to do it quite as much with her chest recently. But it's my middle daughter who is the uh, state women's champion of Michigan. Wow, that is amazing. That is amazing. 
Well, I have your copy of uh, the copy a copy of your book right here in hand, hidden in plain view, undesigned coincidences in the Gospels and Acts. Um, so, first of all, could you explain what you mean by undesigned coincidences, uh, and maybe provide an example or two as to what you what what you mean by this? Yeah, an undesigned coincidence, I like to say, is an incidental interlocking that points to truth. Now, what does that mean? Well, in an undesigned coincidence, we have these details in different documents, occasionally different parts of the same document, but different passages. And they fit together in this wonderful puzzle piece-like way that shows that both passages are describing reality and are doing so honestly. So here's a, a simple example I start with. In Matthew 14, Herod is uh, hearing about Jesus and all of Jesus' works and so forth, and he's kind of freaked out by it because he had beheaded John the Baptist. And so he says, this must be John the Baptist risen from the dead. He has a guilty conscience about this. And Matthew mentions that he says it to his servants, because he was speaking to his attendants, to his servants, and he said this. That is unique to Matthew, by the way. Sometimes when we consider what's unique to Matthew, we only consider entire segments or stories, not little phrases. But that little phrase, to his servants, is unique to Matthew. Now, we could ask a question, how did Matthew know what Herod was saying to his servants? It would be very easy to say that was just something that Matthew made up to make the story maybe sound more interesting. But actually, if you go over to Luke 8, early in Luke 8, verses 2 and 3, Luke is not even talking about John the Baptist, not even talking about the same story. He's listing these women who came and followed Jesus out of Galilee and who contributed financially to his ministry. And Luke says there, he gives a list of names. And there was Mary Magdalene and so forth. And among those, he says, and Joanna, the wife of Husa, who was Herod's household manager. Just this little passing detail, and that is unique to Luke, by the way, that this is how the Christian community could know what was going on in the household of Herod and what was Herod saying to his servants is that a devout follower of Jesus, Joanna, was the wife of Herod's household manager. So that's a little example um, of how those fit together, and neither one is attempting to imitate or fill out or copy the other. These are details that are unique to them, but because they're both describing reality, they fit together in this wonderful, casual way. You know, I read uh, J. Warner Wallace's book, Cold Case Christianity, and I noticed that he picked up on something very very similar to this, and in fact, it may be, in, it, it, uh, be called the same thing to a degree, but he was talking about how the different Gospels resemble eyewitness testimony, the very things that he deals with in, in uh, Cold Case Homicide, uh, as being a whole Cold Case uh, Homicide detective. Yes, definitely. In fact, uh, Jay Warren Wallace wrote the afterward to my book and talks about that there, specifically with respect to the Gospels. Um, and it's exactly like that, because one witness will tell part of what he remembers, um, or part of what happened, but he won't remember everything or he won't mention everything. And the other witness will come in and say the opposite. So that's what these look like. These look like they're coming from eyewitness testimony. In the case of Luke, uh, he didn't claim to have been a disciple of Jesus, but he had an opportunity to interview people who were disciples of Jesus. And that's how he would have gotten his information, or Mark, uh, we are told, got his information from Peter. Matthew, uh, if he was indeed Matthew, could have been a disciple himself and actually witnessed some of these things. Uh, or in the case of uh, learning what Herod said to his servant, maybe he knew Joanna personally. So it's, it's very neat 
to go back and realize how close we're getting to the events that actually happened. Absolutely. Could you provide a few more examples? And let me just say, I haven't gotten through the entire book just yet, but I I found the uh, examples that you mentioned on pages 66 and 67 pertaining to the green grass uh, in the various Gospels, as well as uh, Joseph of Arimathea's courage, or or actually lack of courage beginning, but then uh, obtaining courage later on on pages uh, 76 through 79 to be very fascinating. Uh, could you provide some additional examples of how some sure. of these undesigned coincidences are found in the Gospels? Yeah, absolutely. So I'll start with that one about the green grass. Um, we are told by John what time of year uh, the feeding of the 5,000 took place. He just mentions in John 6 briefly that the Feast of Passover was near at hand. Now, uh, we have this very vivid in our own minds right now because we've just passed uh, Passover, the Jewish Passover, and uh, Christian Easter, which were very, I believe they corresponded this year. Uh, and so we're, we're looking out our windows and seeing that it's spring, and we find that in Mark, it does not mention that it was Passover. It doesn't mention what time of year it was in any direct way, but it says that when Jesus told all the people to sit down, he told them to sit down on the green grass, and Mark's the only one who has that word, it's chloros, like that we get chlorophyll from, that the grass was green. And the grass is not always green over there in that part of the world. Uh, unlike Michigan or North Carolina, where you are, it's not like it starts being green and then it just kind of goes back to being green. It's only green for a while after the rains, and that is one of those times. It's right then. We also have another hint about that time of year, because uh, Mark has mentioned a little earlier that they had to leave the place where they were on probably the west side of the Sea of Galilee and get out of there because it says many people were coming and going and they didn't even have leisure to eat. It doesn't just sound like people only following Jesus, but like a real bustle, you know, like Super Bowl Sunday or something. So what was that all about? Well, those pilgrims would have been going uh, through probably Capernaum over there on the west side of the Sea of Galilee down to Jerusalem. Could be even as many as a million passing through. There was a Roman road that passed through Capernaum. So that's also a hint that this was that time of year. But again, Mark doesn't mention that. John does. Now you uh, mentioned the one about the courage of Joseph of Arimathea. So we find that um, one of the Gospels says you know, that Joseph of Arimathea took courage. I believe that's in Mark. He took courage and asked for the body of Jesus. And it's this this odd phrase. What does it mean that he took courage and asked for the body of Jesus? Because it's not like Pilate was going to get mad at him or something for asking. Uh, Pilate wanted to respect Jewish sensibilities and give them the bodies to bury. But then when we go over to John, we're told that Joseph was a disciple of Jesus but had been secretly so for fear of um, his fellow Jews, and he was a member of the council in the Sanhedrin. So that explains that phrase, that he took courage. So that's just another one. These just fit together so, so beautifully. Here's one that is not in the book, and I, I don't really remember why I didn't put it in the book. In Luke 4, when Jesus is in Nazareth, it looks like it's pretty early in his visit, or in his ministry, I should say. He goes into the synagogue, and he says very sort of ironically to the people, you will tell me Whatever you have done in Capernaum, do here also in Nazareth. Physician, heal yourself. Now, the thing is that in Luke, it hasn't mentioned yet that he's gone to Capernaum. 
So it's kind of like, um, why is he saying that they will tell him to do what he has done in Capernaum? I've had this used uh, as an argument that Luke must have moved the uh, first visit that Jesus makes there where they reject him in the synagogue at, at Nazareth from later in Jesus' ministry. But actually, if you go over to John 4, you find what Jesus might have been referring to, because there in John, Jesus first comes up there to the Galilee region, and while he is in Cana, he's not actually in Capernaum, a royal official comes and says, um, oh, please come and heal my son. And Jesus says, go your way, your son will live. And he goes back to Capernaum, and he finds that his son is alive. So Jesus healed a man in Capernaum, or a boy, possibly, at a distance. So that happens very early when he first comes to the Galilee region there in his ministry. So that could be what Jesus is referring to at this point in Luke 4. So we have an alleged problem in Luke that's actually explained by a, uh, an undesigned coincidence. And then I'd like to give one more concerning Acts, because the Acts ones, people don't always know about this. It's pretty cool. In um, Acts 18, Paul is in Corinth. He's just getting started in his missionary work there. And it says that uh, during the week, Paul worked at his trade at a, um, as, as a tent maker. And then it says, but when um, Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul became completely devoted to the Word. You find that translation in the New American Standard Bible, preaching that, that Jesus was the Christ. Now, completely devoted to the world, Word. Why would their arrival have caused his ministry model to change in this way? Um, Paul is always completely devoted to the Word, so it's a little bit curious. And it just makes you wonder, what could have given Paul the opportunity to do that? Is it possible that they might have brought money to him? Just like people who want to go into full-time Christian ministry, but they have to work at a day job. We even call it tent-making. But they can take, they can stop that if they get enough contributions. Well, that's just a guess. But if we go over to 2 Corinthians 11, 8, 9, we actually find that guess confirmed. There he is writing to the Corinthians, and he says, I never, I never took money from you. When I was with you and I was in need, the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied my need. So there we find an actual confirmation that um, he did receive a contribution from someone who came to him from Macedonia, and we actually find his event of his becoming completely devoted to the Word over in Acts 18. But it's so wonderfully indirect because the author of Acts is not basing it on Second Corinthians. He doesn't say, the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied Paul's need. He might not even know why Paul started preaching more at that time. But because he was a companion of Paul, he knew it. So that's, that's an example of how these things fit together in this very realistic fashion. You know, I've been uh, preaching a series uh, through the Book of Acts at our at our uh, at our church. Excuse me. And uh, this upcoming week, I will be in uh, Acts chapter fifteen. You know, talking about the Jerusalem Council, and I found something that uh, may be kind of like what you're talking about here, because it in Acts it mentions that they took uh, some of the some some others with them. And in Galatians chapter two, you see that uh, Paul brought Titus. Uh, with him to the council, as he's describing the the council meeting in Galatians two. So, it, there is that coincidence how they really fit together in many ways, in many matters of looking at it. And Titus being, um, if I recall correctly, a, a Gentile. Absolutely, that, right? Absolutely. Yeah, he even says that. He emphasizes this. Not even Titus, who was with me, and so forth. And of course, as you're aware, there's 
uh, a lot of um, controversy over whether that meeting described in Galatians 2 is the Jerusalem Council, but I actually am inclined to agree with you that that is the meeting he's describing there in Galatians 2. Absolutely. So, I mean, there are ways that you can see how these things work together, and you know, even with the issue later in the chapter uh, talking about uh, whatever caused this split between uh, Paul and John Mark, whatever caused it, you do see in some other letters that uh, that that Paul admonishes to bring John Mark, you know, with with the individuals, and so I think you can see whatever whatever was causing the problem later on, it was resolved, and I think you have a wonderful story there of reconciliation between Paul and John Mark. You know, yes, and I actually have a coincidence about John Mark in the Acts section of my book because Barnabas um, kind of stuck to John Mark there, and that caused a split between Paul and Barnabas as well. Well, separately, we learned. <laughs> Excuse me. That uh, John Mark was actually Barnabas' kinsman, possibly cousin or something like that. That's and right. So this may, in parts, explain why Barnabas was uh, so determined to to stick to him and not uh, give up on him when Paul was sort of dismissing him. Wonderful point. Wonderful point. And I had made I had not made that connection about them being a kinsman until you just mentioned that, and that would make sense as to why Barnabas would, uh, if you want to say, want to go with John Mark. You know, them being of uh, of of kinship of some sort. Mm-hmm. And he probably brought him into Paul's ministry. He may have been younger, and you know, we don't want to say, you know, we I made a mistake with my cousin here turned out not to be such a good ministry partner or whatever, and especially if he thought Paul was being too harsh with him. So, Absolutely. So, looking at these undesigned coincidences, um, how do... Because we, we have many critics coming at the Bible and, and coming at the faith in many different directions, and, and um, talking about the so-called incons- inconsistencies or even contradictions, how do these undesigned coincidences strengthen the integrity of the Gospels and Acts narrative? They help us to see that these, these books look like truthful reports. They have this wonderful artlessness. Artlessness was a word that was used by older scholars uh, to mean that it's not artificial, it's natural. They aren't like heavily literary narratives that have been massaged and fabricated and where the uh, characters are treated like fictional characters. Instead, we're finding that they just seem to be reporting what they happen to know, what they happen to remember, and then these are confirmed again and again in these casual ways. Um, In Acts, again, the interlockings are often especially casual. Um, So the author of Acts might say where Paul was traveling or what itinerary he was following, and then that'll fit with little hints in the epistles. I've even found that I can place 1st and 2nd Corinthians, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, and Romans within the books of Acts, sometimes in the very verse, by these indirect clues. And then you stop and reflect that Acts never even mentions that Paul wrote letters. Never once does the book of Acts mention, and Paul was writing a letter to the church at Corinth. And yet, it fits beautifully with the letters that Jesus wrote, or excuse me, the letters that Paul wrote to the church at Corinth. So this is what truth looks like. This is what truthful historical reporting looks like, and that's how that strengthens our sense of their integrity. Wow. 
and on that note, how, how would you say this this view, which which I found this interesting, I didn't realize this till I started reading your book, that this is actually an older model used, I, I believe, I think you said, what, in the 1700s, 1800s? Mm-hmm, both, yes. And so how, how does this, um, this view help one to work through these so-called inconsistencies that uh, are contradictions? Yeah, that people claim there are contradictions. There are two ways that I think it helps with that. The first way is that sometimes we thought that there's a place where the critical scholars have claimed that there's a problem, and then it turns out there's an undesigned coincidence right at that very point that confirms that the Gospel's reporting truthfully. So I gave an example of this before concerning uh, Luke, where Jesus says, you will tell me to do what I have done at Capernaum, and, uh, oh, notice in Luke, Jesus hasn't gone to Capernaum yet, this is a problem. And then it turns out that we can go over to John and find out what he might have been referring to. Luke might not have even known what he was referring to, but Luke just reports what he knew Jesus said. And there are, there are several others. Um, there's the foot washing, for example. Some scholars have tried to say that Luke moved an entire speech of Jesus on that night, where Jesus says, um, he that is greatest among you must be the servant of all, and that, that Jesus really said that at a different time, and that Luke just pretended that uh, Jesus said it on that night of his betrayal. Um, but actually, his words on servanthood are linked with this saying, I am among you as the one who serves. And in Luke he says, uh, you know, who is greater, the one who serves or the one who sits, at, uh, reclines, it would be, at the table, but as you see, I am I am among you as the one who serves. What is that talking about? Well, Luke doesn't tell us what that's talking about, but we have an undesigned coincidence. If we go over to John, we find that Jesus has just taken off his uh, outer garments and girded himself as a servant and literally been among them as one who serves. So that gives us confidence that Luke did not move this speech from a different time and just pretend that Jesus gave it on a different night, uh, that Luke is really reporting it. Maybe that means Jesus said something similar on two different occasions. So that's the, the first thing, is that undesigned coincidence can actually solve or strengthen our confidence in the very places being challenged. But there's a second way. Even when a, an undesigned coincidence doesn't concern a specific passage that is under challenge, they just help us to develop a more robust confidence that these alleged consist- inconsistencies may have very natural explanations and that we don't need to hypothesize any kind of fabrication because many alleged discrepancies are very flimsy. And if, you, if you're just willing to do some very natural historical harmonization, uh, they're really not problems. They're they're very workable, but there's a tremendous bias against harmonization, and I think uh, laymen and pastors, and especially scholars, almost feel guilty about doing it. Undesigned coincidences give us the sense that actually we're supposed to put these these documents together. We're not supposed to treat them separately. We're supposed to put them together to find out what really happened, and that's just good historical practice, and then that helps us to have a whole new perspective on alleged inconsistencies and have a little more confidence that uh, in, in many, many cases, these can be worked out. You know, and, and I've kind of thought about the whole issue with, you know, in John's gospel, the cleansing of the temple comes towards the beginning of the ministry of Jesus. And I remember one of the church fathers, and I cannot remember who it was, but someone said something about that John wrote his gospel somewhat as a supplement to the other uh, to the other gospels, focusing on the uh, Judean ministry of Jesus. And I know some people would say that maybe John just remembered it wrong, maybe he put it in the wrong spot. But 
for me, I, th- I think it is possible. I mean, uh, th- because it seems like the details in John's gospel are different than the synoptics. Could it not be possible that there was more than one temple cleansing? Oh, absolutely. I think that's obvious. Um, I don't understand why people have so much of a problem with that. You know, I've stood in front of the same abortion clinic on more than one occasion. You know, right. <laughs> <laughs> you held a very similar sign and had people yell very similar insults when they drove past. So, um, people, it's amazing how often things that can be described in very generally similar terms do happen twice. And I'm sure that the money changers went back to business as usual after Jesus had uh, overturned the tables one time. That doesn't mean he changed it, and it's not as though they had a TSA screening uh, entrance <laughs> point set up there to prevent him from coming back. Are you Jesus of Nazareth? Sorry, we're not going to let you in. You might cause a disturbance. Uh, it, you know, so I see no problem that there's a tremendous bias against ever saying that something happened twice. Uh, people will mock at that. They will even say, oh, next thing you're going to be saying, you know, that uh, Peter denied Jesus six times. You know, as if you've got to duplicate things. I see people mock at that. But I think we need to get a sense of the natural occasions when similar things do happen on more than one occasion. I call this activating your real-world imagination. Mm. And that is what undesigned coincidences help us do to activate our real-world imagination. And just one more note on this. It, it seems to me that something... Would would seriously have had to happen in Jesus's ministry for these Pharisee for the Pharisees and religious leaders. Uh, let me put it that way: for them to start following Jesus in his ministry, to see what he's up to. Uh, it seems like something drastic or dramatic must have happened earlier on in his ministry to get this type of attention that he had. Right in in Jerusalem, we find that they're pretty hostile to him in the Synoptic Gospels even though we haven't seen him do a whole lot in Jerusalem. So later in his ministry, they, they, just, they just already hate his guts when he comes to Jerusalem. And I think that is well explained by his additional visits to Jerusalem in, that are recounted in John, both the, both the one you mentioned, the earlier temple cleansing, also his claims to deity, his healing uh, of the man at the pool of Bethesda, and telling him to take up his uh, cot and walk on the Sabbath, so there's been a Sabbath controversy, his healing the blind man, and so that there's history there, and that actually does fit together between John and the Synoptics very well. Amazing, amazing stuff. Now, we have listeners from various educational backgrounds who listen to our program, uh, could you explain the literary device theory? Now, we at the outset, at the very beginning of the podcast, we discussed how there in the apologetic community there's a discussion between the undesigned coincidence theory and the literary device theory. Could you explain the literary device theory and what this theory is and how does it uh, compare or contrast with the undesigned coincidence theory? Yeah, there's a family of theories that I would call literary device theories about the Gospels. I've been writing a lot about this lately. And this family of theories uh, holds for different uh, passages in the Gospels that they are to some degree or other fiction. These theories would teach us to look at the Gospels as being somewhat like what we would call a biopic, uh, a partially partially fictionalized movie about someone's life or possibly even like a historical novel. 
And um, the, the idea being that, it's yeah, it's written in this realistic fashion. You know, it looks seamless. It's not like there's some little flag all of a sudden saying, aha, you know, this upcoming part is made up um, like there would be for a parable or something. No, it's just written seamlessly in, but some portions are just in this invisible way. They've been changed or they've been fictionalized. Now, it's important for listeners to know that the portions of the Gospels that are dehistoricized by these theories range pretty widely. Uh, occasionally you'll hear it said that the claim is merely that in the Gospels we sometimes don't have Jesus' exact words, or something is not recounted with extreme precision. <clears throat> That's simply incorrect as a characterization of this theory. That's not what these theories are. They're not merely saying, oh, we don't have Jesus' precise words. So I'm going to give a few examples to show how these go and how they, what they're doing to dehistoricize these. So one idea that was promoted by scholars uh, Dan Wallace and also Michael Lacona is that Jesus did not historically say, I thirst, while he was on the cross. And this is not just saying that he really said, I'm thirsty, please give me some water or something that has uh, a little more content or slightly differently worded. Instead, it's saying, he really said, my God, and why have you forsaken me? But then he didn't say, I thirst in addition, but rather that John changed, my God, why have you forsaken me, into I thirst. These obviously are very, very different. Uh, this isn't just not having Jesus' exact words. Another theory is that Jesus did not appear first to his male disciples in Jerusalem at all, that rather he first appeared in Galilee and that Luke moved his first appearance to Jerusalem for literary reasons because Luke was trying to make it look like all the appearances occurred on Easter Day and there wouldn't have been time to travel to Galilee. And this is, this is going to call a lot of things into question because John, of course, places the entire Doubting Thomas sequence in Jerusalem before they ever went to Galilee, and you can't imagine Doubting Thomas traveling to Galilee while he was still doubting. So uh, this makes a big difference. Um, these fictionalization theories do have implications even concerning the evidence for the resurrection. One theory promoted by Craig Evans is that Jesus never historically said, I am the light of the world or I am the bread of life. This is not because he used slightly different words and said, I am the lamp of the world or I am the food of life, but rather these sayings did not occur historically at all. They were dramatic portrayals by the Johannine community of their theological reflections on Jesus' teachings. Um, one of the one of the most extreme views, uh, which Dr. Lacona attributes to what he calls many Johannine scholars, he says he doesn't, he's not sure whether he believes it or not, but supposedly many Johannine scholars believe that Jesus would not have been as explicit about his deity as we find him being in John, where he says, I and the Father are one, or before Abraham was, I am. Instead, the idea is that there's this uh, secret about his identity, and that he only presented himself as God in this more indirect way, like by claiming to forgive sin, such as we find in Mark, and then that John wrote up these other scenes, which did not occur, in which Jesus makes these more explicit claims to deity. So obviously these things Theories are going well beyond saying that we just don't have Jesus' exact words. Now, this whole approach to answer that second question is completely at odds with the view that is supported by undesigned coincidences. Because what we see with undesigned coincidences is that they appear to be honest, artless reportage, historical reports from people who are knowledgeable about the events. They're not trying to do a literary massage. They're not making things happen. They're not treating Jesus as a character that they can put words into his mouth. Um, 
it's the very casualness of the reports that causes the undesigned coincidences to arise. An author just tells something because that's how he remembered it or how his source remembers it, and then that fits together with something elsewhere in another gospel. Why? Because reality is like that. Reality is self-consistent, and so if you truthfully and casually report in a straight reportage way one part of reality, then that's going to fit together with somebody else's truthful report. Um, I want to mention one other really important difference is that in the approach I'm taking in my book on Undesigned Coincidences, I take very seriously the possibility that Matthew and Luke and also John really had independent access to what happened. The literary device theory tends to be very shackled to redaction criticism, where, say, Matthew is always redacting Mark. So if something's in Matthew that's different from Mark, then he's either redacting Mark, maybe he's using Q, but we never treat real seriously that Matthew might have been present and might actually be adding something from his own memories. And the same with Luke. Um, but I'm taking seriously the possibility that the, there's substantial independence here of real access to truth. And that theory then explains a lot. And I want to say one more thing about John. John gets hit real hard by these literary device theories, as you would have seen in the examples I just gave. He's treated as if he's just like a horse of a different color. But what's interesting is that on the contrary, if you look at my book, John has the largest number of undesigned coincidences for, of any gospel for his unique material. So the more that John tells us, the more we find out that he is right and that he is literally historically reporting. So John is actually, I'm not saying the other gospels are not historical, but I'm saying the very fact that John has so much more unique material gives him more opportunities to confirm the historicity of his unique materials. So that kind of shows you the contrast between those two views. And you know, this issue was something that I dealt with whenever I had I struggled in faith and actually left the ministry for a period of seven years. It was actually due to the Jesus Seminar and wondering how much we can trust what we find in the Gospels pertaining to Jesus. And one thing that by reading Josh McDowell, Lee Strobel's books, uh, I found, I really, t to be quite honest, I was kind of naive about the early church fathers, and I found that that there are several attestations in the early church fathers that uh, that these guys that that Mark recorded the uh, testimony of Peter that Matthew was a uh, uh, an eyewitness John was an eyewitness Luke was a biographer if you want to call him that historian uh, and, and there seem like there are good reasons for accepting that information and so when you go back and look at it like that and see like you said these these uh these things that kind of play in together you do find supporting details uh, it's it appears to be within the documents themselves if you give i think if you look at it from the perspective that these guys could have been who the early church fathers claimed them to be right you're taking that theory seriously and you're taking it in a sense for a test drive in a very robust way and i find that many uh new testament scholars they almost take that off the table you know, that if, if we admit that Matthew could have been Matthew at all, we'll at least treat it as explanatorially powerless. You know, he might have been Matthew, but for some reason or other, uh, he had to depend on other people to tell him what happened. We're not going to actually take seriously that he might have personally been present. So um, I'm coming in here, and in a sense, I think it's good that I'm an outsider to the New Testament New Testament community, because I'm looking at it with fresh eyes, and I'm saying, what if we took seriously the possibility that these guys really knew what they were talking about? What would that do 
for our view, and how would that hypothesis fare against the evidence? And it fares immensely well. It fares enormously well and is um, well supported. Absolutely. Um, and, and, and going forward in this, how has your research strengthened your belief in the, in, in the historical reliability of the Gospel Acts narratives? Because I, I know we have uh, J. Warner Wallace's testimonials about it was actually this eyewitness testimony that was part of what led him to faith to believe that these testimonials, uh, testimonials are, are trustworthy. So, so what has this done for your belief in the historicity or the historical reliability of these New Testament documents? Well, I've learned a huge amount, and not just from undesigned coincidences. There are other lines of evidence as well, like the unity of Jesus' personality throughout the Gospels. And what this has brought home to me is the vividness of Jesus and of the Apostle Paul in the events that have happened. You know, one of the major problems with these literary theories is that Jesus becomes very fuzzy. Uh, we might call him a low-resolution Jesus. You know, like you have a low-resolution image. But what I've seen from undesigned coincidences and many other arguments is that actually we have a high-resolution Jesus. We have a very vivid Jesus. Um, and so if someone comes along and says, well, why, why shouldn't we uh, just think that they made that up? Why should we take that to be true? Then we have, we have answers. We have answers that we can give to that. Um, we can say, well, there's this reason and this reason and this reason. Even We even find Jesus' physical gestures. I was just uh, doing a little research on Jesus and John and Jesus and the synoptics, and you find him uh, when he's going to heal the man who's deaf. He touches the man's uh, tongue, and he touches his um, and, he, and he spits and touches his tongue, and he says he looked up to heaven and he sighed. And then when you go over into John, uh, when he's about to uh, call Lazarus forth, Lazarus forth from the grave, it says he looked up to heaven and he prayed. So you get this picture, you can actually picture Jesus. Um, we have a very, very robust idea that when scholars talk about the people in the Bible as if they were characters being manipulated, being pushed around on a chessboard, as it were, that's just not correct. There's a huge amount of evidence to the contrary. And I want, to, I want to say that because, if, you know, if people wonder, why does Lydia have a problem with this alternative view, these literary views? Well, because it's, it's false, and because the evidence is to the contrary, and because there's no good evidence for it. So my view of the reliability of the Gospels and Acts in a very literal sense, not some kind of redefined reliability, has been strengthened by all this research I've done, both for my book, Hidden in Plain View, and also for um, also for the work that I've done since then on these literary theories and these device theories and why they're incorrect, I've really begun to see exactly the contrary coming out clearly that they're highly, highly reliable in a very normal and literal way, and that's it's been a very exciting thing to see. You know, one thing I found whenever I was uh, actually reevaluated the Jesus Seminar, which I, I, I've been told that no one takes the Jesus Seminar seriously anymore. But one thing that's happened is is when with this redefinition of Jesus um, within the Jesus Seminar is I noticed they began to make Jesus look like themselves rather than the Jesus of the Bible. And I think that uh, taking the, the, the Christ we see, the Jesus at face value, is what we find in the uh, New Testament documents, which... Anyone who's listened to this podcast or read my articles know that I, I'm a strong advocate of the traditional view, 
that we find in the early church fathers pertaining to the authors of the four Gospels. But I, be, I think we begin to see Jesus as he really is in that regard. And so, um, you know, it, it's, it's really interesting to see the connectivity of these, of these Gospel narratives in the book of Acts, when, you know, looking at them as if they could be uh, who the early church uh, claimed these uh, writers to be. Right, and that, and that they are what they present themselves as, which is documents telling in a historical fashion uh, what Jesus actually did and said. That's not just a silly, naive view. Uh, that's actually borne out when we investigate it. And I've had, I've had people say to me that by studying undesigned coincidences, it comes home to them. These things really happened. This really happened. And, and I feel that way about the, the foot washing, for example, that I was talking about. And did Jesus maybe two different times say something somewhat similar about how it shall not be so among you as it is among the kings of the Gentiles, but rather he who is the, the least of all shall be the greatest among you? Well, sure. It was just, you know, maybe ten days before that they had been bickering over who would be on his right and left hand in the kingdom. And then you can just picture them on the night of uh, the Last Supper, they start bickering again. Well, that's what people are like. They were still ticked off at James and John for requesting those right and left hand positions. And so what does Jesus say? He he gets up and he washes their feet. And then he sits down and he says, okay, guys, one more time from the top. And he says it to them again. And it gives you this wonderful, wonderful, vivid sense of who Jesus was and what he was really doing, that these things really happened. Well, Lydia, believe it or not, we were talking before the podcast wondering if we were going to be able to get through everything. Uh, We're actually good on time, (laughs) which is absolutely amazing. Do you have any closing thoughts that you would like to leave with our listeners? Yes, I, I have several. I want to empower laymen in the church. I want my work to empower laymen. The great thing about the argument from undesigned coincidence is that it is not difficult to understand. You can take your Bible, you can follow the way that these accounts fit together. And I have many more examples in hidden in plain view. It's available on Amazon in both paper and Kindle form. So get a hold of it. You do not need to be a scholar to understand this argument. Also, in general, I want to empower laymen to realize that if something sounds off or dubious, don't allow yourself to feel that you just have to accept it, that uh, you can't investigate for yourself. I'm not saying everything will always turn out the way you want it to. I think, unfortunately, that the long ending of Mark probably is not, um, is not authentic. There's various things like that. But look into it for yourself. Do not ever let anybody browbeat you and say, well, you know, what do you know? You're just a layman. You, don't, you can't look into this. Do look into it. Be like the Bereans who uh, investigated to see whether these things were so. And the great thing is that when you look into it, you find that the view of the Gospels and Acts' literal historical reportage is very well supported. I also wanted to say something about how this relates to the Incarnation, and the doctrine of the Incarnation. Jesus came to earth to unite history and theology. Jesus walked on earth as God incarnate so that we could know God the Father by knowing Jesus the Son. So we should never think that there's this very minimal amount that we can know about Jesus by history, and then that everything else, all the additional stuff, we have to accept by faith. On the contrary, the Jesus of Christ, the Jesus Christ of history is the Jesus Christ of faith. The Jesus whom we love and follow by faith is the same one whom we can know historically 
through these documents because they do stand up to historical scrutiny. And so all of these higher truths, like the atonement, the trinity, the deity of Jesus Christ, are connected with the nitty-gritty of historical facts by the person and ministry of Jesus Christ himself. And then I wanted to leave people with a way to find more. I have a personal webpage, LydiaMcGrew.com. If you go there, that's a portal to everything else. It has links to where you can buy my book. It has links to detailed points on all kinds of matters. You can search for New Testament or apologetics on that page and find links to a lot more material that is free um, on New Testament study what's wrong with these literary device theories, why they're not well-argued. Also, resources by my husband, Tim. He originally taught me the argument from undesigned coincidences. I certainly did not go out and find that for myself. He found it in those older writers, William Paley and J.J. Blunt. And uh, he's given many lectures and talks, and you can follow through links from LydiaMagrew.com and find those. He's recently given a talk himself uh, about the problems with literary device theories. So if you're interested, go to LydiaMagrew.com and check out all of that additional material because there's lots more where this came from that I hope will be able to help people. Amen. Lydia, thank you so much. Well, I hope you I hope you'll come back consider coming back on the podcast. I have thoroughly enjoyed our conversation today. And so uh, we want to thank you for coming on. Thank you for your work for the kingdom and also thank Tim uh, as well for us for all the things he's done for the kingdom of God as well. So I absolutely will. Yes. Thank you for having me, Brian. Absolutely. You have an open invitation anytime. I will I will take that very, very seriously. I hope to come back. Absolutely. Thanks. <laughs> well, for Dr. Lydia McGrew, uh, we want to say thank you. By the way, go by and check out LydiaMcGrew.com. Be sure to get your copy of the, her book, Hidden in Plain View, Undesigned Coincidences in the Gospel and Acts. I've gotten about halfway through, and I'm telling you, telling you this is a wonderful book. Go, go by and pick up your copy today. So once again, for Dr. Lydia McGrew, this is Brian Chilton. You've been listening to the Bellator Christie Podcast, and we'll see you back the next time that we step into the arena. The views expressed on this podcast do not necessarily represent those of BellatorChristi.com or its affiliates. The Bellator Christi podcast is a production of BellatorChristi.com and is protected under Creative Commons copyright. All rights reserved. The theme song is Crucified, written by John and Kayla Lemonese, performed by Crosby Lane, and produced by Mansion Entertainment. Be sure to visit BellatorChristi.com and subscribe so that you can receive all the articles and podcasts in your inbox for free. Catch us on iTunes, TuneIn, and Stitcher. For Brian Chilton, this is Burl Childers saying God bless, and we'll see you the next time as we enter into the arena of ideas. is God? What is He like? How can we know? The answers you give to these questions will have a tremendous impact on your worship, discipleship, apologetics, and evangelism. Faulty ideas about God are permeating both the church and the culture. It's time to get back to the basics of understanding the existence and nature of the God who is. Marking the 25th year of this annual event, 
Southern Evangelical Seminary's National Conference on Christian Apologetics returns to Calvary Church in Charlotte, North Carolina, with an all-star lineup of some of the finest Christian minds in the world to explore this incredibly important topic. Join us October 12th through 13th, 2018 at Calvary Church in Charlotte, North Carolina. Among the 65 speakers at the event include Ravi Zacharias of RZIM, Josh McDowell of Josh McDowell Ministries, Chip Ingram of Living on the Edge, Gary Habermas of Liberty University, Natasha Crane, Richard Land, and many, many more. Ticket prices before August 1st are $75 for adults, $45 for students. After August 1st, the tickets go up to $85 for adults and $55 for regular price. Save an extra 5% per ticket when you register by May 1st. Group, homeschool, Christian school, and skeptic discounts are available. Call for details by dialing 1-800-77-TRUTH, extension 201. Once again, that's 1-800-77-TRUTH, extension 201. Or go to conference.ses.edu. The 25th anniversary of the National Conference on Christian Apologetics will be October 12th and 13th at Calvary Church in Charlotte, North Carolina. Hope to see you there. Some say the best Bible translation is the one that's most literal, word for word, through and through. But there's not always a direct English translation of ancient words. So others say the best Bible translation should favor readability, thought for thought, holding on to the same meaning. But we can all agree that the very best Bible translation is one you trust and one that you want to read, one that stirs your heart and moves you to share its truth. Christian Standard Bible has been shown to be an optimal blend of accuracy and readability compared to other leading translations. The very best balance, faithfulness to the original text, and clear language that connects to the heart. After all, it's not so much about changing your Bible translation, but about seeing the Bible change your life. Point your heart to true north. The Christian Standard Bible. The Christian Standard Bible is the official translation of BellatorChristi.com. Go pick up your translation of the CSB today.